0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In, which we're bringing to you 10 days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it seemed appropriate to us on this occasion, therefore, to be talking about defence spending. We are delighted to be joined today by Professor Malcolm Chalmers, who's Deputy Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, and an expert on defence spending. And I'm also joined today by my colleague, Ben Zaranko, who does most of our work here on public spending as a whole, and we'll be putting, hopefully, some of the defence spending issues into a bit of context. There's a lot to talk about, but Malcolm, can, can we start just by just saying, where, where, where were we, uh, where are we today in terms of defence spending uh, and what it can buy us as a nation? We know that defence spending is a lot less as a fraction of national income than it was 30, 40, 50 Years ago, but we still spend more than most other, or indeed all other European countries. Can you just give us a sense of where that has taken us in terms of our capabilities?
1: Indeed, I can. And as you say, the UK is the biggest defense spender in NATO, Europe. The margin has declined a little bit. Germany's beginning to catch up, but the UK is still ahead. The UK, far the budget it has for defense, it, It allows us to maintain a a nuclear deterrent, which is now a big priority in terms of modernising that deterrent. It's also got by far the most capable surface fleet, and navy of the major European powers, and a significant air force, maybe more comparable with those of France and Germany. Probably the area in which the UK is relatively smaller is in relation to our ground forces. And that's partly for geographical and historical reasons, we were a bit further from the likely places where the army might be used. And part of the historical experience, actually going back a very long time, is traditionally the army was often used to help police uh, empire. And uh, the, the wars of intervention we've been involved in in Iraq and Afghanistan were a natural return to that. But in terms of the army's commitment to Europe, traditionally the UK only built up a large army When a major continental war took place, the Napoleonic Wars, the the two world wars, but in between, it went back to becoming more of an expeditionary army. So that sort of sets the tone of what, what we spend our money on. It's quite a lot of different things. And actually, the reason why we can do a lot of different things, often with relatively limited volumes, quantities of of capability. is because our whole grand strategy, certainly since the 1960s, arguably since 1945, has been based on alliances. So we we don't structure our forces primarily around the UK fighting by itself. We structure our forces around primarily the UK fighting with others, and most of all with the United States and our, our European neighbours. And again, the Ukraine crisis, of course, the response is a NATO one rather than a primarily national. And that means that the alliance provides the mass and we provide quality, but but not necessarily the, the mass which, which others can provide.
0: And those others really are the United States, aren't they? I mean, could you just give us a sense of scale here and how big UK spending and UK forces are relative to the US? And indeed, what role, what is such a small fraction of that actually plays in something like Ukraine or more broadly in the NATO strategy?
1: No, it's a really good question. I think that the UK defence budget is around 8% of the US defence budget. That proportion has gone down a little bit, but actually it's been more or less there since the late 1960s. This is nothing new. But France and Germany spend a little bit less than us, so maybe they're down at 6 or 7% of the American defence budget. I think the UK in some cases, punches above the weight which those numbers might suggest. I think it punches above its weight in European security because the United States spends actually more now on Asian security than European security. Their forces, of course, are flexible between the two to some extent. So specifically in relation to NATO and Europe, the UK is more important. And we've seen that in this crisis where UK forces are actually quite an important element of the European response albeit dwarfed by the American response. And I think the UK also plays perhaps a rather more disproportionate role because we are one of only three nuclear weapon states in the alliance. And when you get into a situation in which nuclear weapons are more relevant and clearly they're, they're less relevant in the war on terror, but more relevant when you're dealing with deterrence of a, a nuclear armed state like Russia or indeed China perhaps, uh, then you know we're, we're one of only three. And again, there it's not really additive, because our nuclear arsenal is a fraction of that United States. It's, it's more it's a, another center of decision-making, which would complicate the calculations of an adversary power. And maybe the nu- nuclear forces is the best example of the hedging element in British defense, strategy defense capability. Some of our capabilities are there just in case the Americans aren't committed in a particular scenario. And then I think the UK capabilities are, are really important. And that's obviously true of the nuclear deterrent, the, the, which is entirely irrelevant in a situation in which the American deterrent works. But you can imagine scenarios in which the United States might not be prepared to risk you know, New York for Berlin or wherever it might be. Well,
0: that's a cheery scenario. <laughs> but, um, let's put this in a bit of broader context. I'll just bring uh, Ben zaranko in for, for, for a minute. We're, as Malcolm has said, um, our spending is about 2% on defence, about 2% of national income, and that's come down a lot over time. How does that fit into the overall picture of UK public spending?
2: One of the big stories of the past 70 years or so, if we look at the the size and the shape of the UK state, has been defence falling, not just as a share of national income, but as a share of what government does. So in the, in the mid-1950s, defence was seven and a half, eight percent of national income, about one in every five pounds that the government spent went on defence. And that's fallen steadily over time for a number of big reasons. And that's fallen to, as Malcolm says, about two percent of national income today. It's been hovering at about that point since 2015. But the overall size of the British state hasn't fallen by the same amount. And the primary reason for that is because falling spending on defence has allowed successive prime ministers and successive chancellors to increase how much we spend on the welfare state, and in particular, how much we spend on the NHS, without having to increase the overall size of government and without having to increase taxes. So that shift away from defence and towards health is a big story of what's happened over the past 60, 70 years or so. And the fact that now defence spending has, if you like, hit its floor, we're at about the 2% Pledge that we make as a NATO member can't really fall any further unless we were to break that pledge. Is part of the reason why chancellors and prime ministers have had to start looking elsewhere for funds to pay for a growing health service, namely increases in national insurance and the new health and social care levy from next year. I think that's a big story of what's happened that we perhaps need to take stock of as we look ahead.
0: And Malcolm, that fall as a fraction of national income, as Ben was saying, has pretty much bottomed out, but. What were the pressures even before Ukraine? What were the pressures on that budget? Was the general view among those analysing this that it was that it was adequate, or was there really strong pressure in any case to increase spending? And if so, where were those pinch points?
1: Well, there's always pressure from every one of the armed forces to spend more in defence. Defence is not unique as a public service. Those involved in each public service want to spend more, understandably, from their own point of view. I think that the key turning point was the integrated review, which the government published last year, and indeed the spending review that set the scene for that. And if you go back to 2015 and the big review then, essentially there there was an increase in defence spending, relatively modest one under the Cameron Conservative government. But as part of that, the the government committed to a, a range of new projects, which meant that the budget was basically unbalanced. The commitments were greater than the spending allocated. And really, the period between 2015 and 2020 saw the MOD increasingly frustrated at having to manage an investment plan, which was incompatible with the money available. But when you came to the integrated review in 2020-2021, essentially, the Treasury and Number 10 agreed a significant cash injection into the Ministry of Defence's capital program, which essentially addressed the budgetary gap there was on the capital program. So actually, the Integrated Review didn't commit to many new equipment programs. There were some, but not very many. Most of the extra money was put into paying for commitments that had already been made, both nuclear and conventional, in in all three services. It was an increase in capital spending over two years of uh, around 40% in real terms, which is a very big injection of extra cash. By comparison, the operating budget in the integrated review and the associated spending review was more or less stagnant, depending on the the inflation numbers uh, that you're using when you do the calculation, it's maybe a couple percent down over five years in real terms. But essentially, Uh, static. And that involves some cuts in personnel numbers and quite a number of other savings in defence operations. So privileging the long term, the capital programme over the operating budget is the the latest twist in the defence budget story.
0: And the impact of that stagnation on operating costs. And indeed, I mean, one of the things, you even ignoring whether there's additional pressure on what the uh, defence forces actually do over the next few years, of course, inflation is a lot higher than the Chancellor expected back in October. There will presumably be pressure on pay in the armed forces, and MOD uses an awful lot of fuel, which will also increase pressure. And what are the likely consequences if there's no top-up?
1: I think if there is no top-up to the operating budget, then there will be very severe problems, particularly if there's a pay increase, which is well above the projected levels. I mean, this again, a problem common to... So the whole public sector, or at least those parts of the public sector, which are personnel intensive. So there's a real issue there. And I suspect there will have to be a treasury-wide solution if pay settlements come in well above levels. And the fuel, hopefully, is is a rather more short-term issue. But that will have a a, a very significant impact if there is a sustained increase in fuel costs. I think that there's something quite unusual with the defence budget, that the defence budget has a as a core element and then an operations element. So the MOD gets paid its core budget for when it's really not getting involved in doing anything exceptional. It's not involved <laughs> in any operations. But when something comes along, when a war comes along or a more limited uh, involvement in, in, in a conflict comes along, and there are extra costs involved, then there's a government commitment to pay for those extra costs over and above the core budget. So, for example, when we're supplying extra arms to the Ukrainian armed forces, they have to be replaced in UK stockpiles, or when we're increasing the alert levels of our forces, or deploying an extra battalion to Estonia, more air patrols, all the sort of things that are happening right now, the extra costs of that activity, it should be picked up by the Treasury. They haven't confirmed that yet, but that will be the normal practice. But insofar as extra fuel or personnel costs are about things which you have to do day-to-day, whether or not there's a conflict somewhere, then that's going to hit the MOD pretty hard.
0: Ben, perhaps you could put that into a bit of the broader context, because of course, whilst the MOD is particularly affected directly by what's happening in Ukraine, there are pressures right across the public budget, whether that be in terms of helping households further with fuel bills, or whether it be with meeting the real terms intention of October's spending review.
2: Absolutely. A lot of the pressures that Malcolm's talked about are definitely going to be those felt by schools, by hospitals, by prisons, by courts. They'll all be looking at the budgets they were given last October, which were predicated on inflation in what you'd call you know, the quote-unquote normal sort of range, perhaps two, maybe three percent. Now we're expecting CPI inflation to peak perhaps more than eight percent this April. The shock in just the space of five or six months has been really quite remarkable. And the question for the Chancellor over the next few weeks will be whether those public spending plans still stand up to scrutiny and whether perhaps he might have to revisit, make top-ups in places. But of course, that's not the only pressure. There's lots of pressure for him to support households in the face of extremely high inflation by recent standards by extremely large increases in particularly gas and energy bills and so he's going to have to make some very difficult decisions he won't be able to do everything he won't be able to please everyone i'd like to just pick up on something malcolm said about the the sort of shift towards capital spending at the same time as squeezing the sort of day-to-day resource budget cutting back on personnel count that sort of thing clearly that's going to be exacerbated if Pay awards are anything close to what inflation is looking like. Yet the budget is predicated on more like two or three percent pay awards. If you start doing pay awards in the region of five, six, seven percent, something's going to have to give. That may well be headcount. But it's also interesting that this this shift towards capital spending and towards equipment happened. I'm sure there are very good arguments for it from people within the MOD and within the defence community. I mean, it basically happened because the government relaxed its fiscal rules, and it decided it was willing to borrow to pay for investment spending, not just in defence, but across the board in transport, research and development, all sorts of things. And so I guess defence has been one beneficiary of that, for sure. But whether it was driven by that, whether it was driven by the fact that the Treasury was suddenly willing and able to spend more on capital, I think is an interesting question. I'm
1: not sure whether that was an important consideration. I think from my point of view, There were two important considerations. Uh, One was that the MOD had a, a number of equipment commitments already, which they judged were necessary in order to make the UK armed forces fit for the warfare that was anticipated for the 2030s and beyond. And without a big increase in capital spending, some really difficult decisions would have had to be taken to cut some big projects. It wouldn't have been enough to whittle down have a few less frigates or or a few less nuclear warheads, you'd actually have to cut out some big chunk, which would have been very difficult, I think, politically and quite risky militarily. So that was one explanation. I think another aspect, however, is that uh, the big increase in capital spending does fit very well with the government's prosperity agenda and its levelling-up agenda, because it is about investing in what are, in most cases, pretty high-technology industries Very often, defense industry located outside the southeast of England, uh, shipbuilding and aerospace, uh, most obviously, but also defense electronics. And indeed, there are export opportunities associated with that defense industry, as we're seeing now with the AUKUS deal with Australia and the possibility of selling nuclear submarines there. The prosperity agenda, I think, is a a key element in explaining that focus on equipment. But I think the Ukraine crisis in a way, it provides an opposite set of incentives. Because in the Ukraine crisis, the most urgent area for spending is is spending that can deliver military effect quickly, rather than over 10 or 15 years. The Russia threat is most acute now in the next couple of years, not for the 2030s. And the economies on the operations side are creating risks in regards to our ability to provide a a strong UK contribution to the NATO response.
0: So that raises the obvious question as to what your projections are, what your views are, as to the short and medium term effects of what's happening now in the Ukraine. We've seen a number of other European countries say that they will finally meet the 2% NATO target. There's clearly immediate pressure on the UK defence Budget. Do you see this as a period where we're going to almost be forced, as it were, to increase defence spending over the next decade or, or so? Or is this something that we're likely to be able to ride out with our current level of spending as a fraction of national income?
1: At present, the MOD is programming for a, a, an annual increase over the decade of around one and a half or two percent per annum in real terms, which is more or less it will keep us at a stable proportion of GDP and defence spending if the economy doesn't do too badly, at least. So there will be a question as to whether that's enough and whether that should be a greater rate of growth. I think the UK is in a rather different position from some other European countries. So essentially, the small NATO states, eastern NATO states, have all increased their defence budgets from a very low base to 2%, in some cases, higher. I think Poland will probably go quite a bit higher because they're the most exposed to Russia. The southern European states like Spain and Italy have not done that, and their defence budgets are pretty low. France is around 2% and pretty comparable with us, maybe a bit less than us, but but they're up at 2%, and and really are, are in many ways our main comparator, I think, in this. And then the biggest change we've seen in the last two weeks is the German announcement of a massive increase in in German spending. And the the headline number from the chancellor is an extra 100 billion euros on defense, which looks as if that's going to be over a period of several years. That's not a one-year increase. And from the limited information we've got available from the German Ministry of Defense, most of that money is going to be going into capital programs, to fill the unfinanced capital ambitions of the German armed forces, and they did add new ambitions, it's not going to go into increasing the size of the German armed forces. So in a way, Germany is going through the process which the UK went through in the integrated review of recapitalizing its program and uh, responding to the capital aspirations which were no longer there. So if that interpretation of what Germany is doing is right, It will build more capable German armed forces without making them bigger. And Germany has said, I will believe it when I see it, but Germany has said it will increase its defence budget to 2% of GDP. If it does so, then because Germany's economy is is much larger than ours, it will mean Germany will become the biggest defence spender in NATO Europe for the first time since World War II. So that will be a big shift and displace the UK from that position. The question for the UK will then be, uh, I mean, I think it's clear that in the short term there are some real operational needs which will require extra spending and uh, reversing some of those cuts in operation spending I think probably will be a political imperative in that regard and paying fully for any pay increases and so on, but also paying for the actual expense of the Ukraine-related operations. But I think beyond that, I think will the UK as some parliamentarians argue, it increase its defence budget to 2.5% of GDP or 27 or 3%. These numbers are all thrown out rather arbitrarily, uh, but there's a lot of money involved. And I think decision-makers in Whitehall will be quite cautious not to rush into such a commitment until they've properly digested what is happening in relation to Ukraine. We've got so many different scenarios, geopolitical scenarios coming out of the Ukraine a scenario in which Russia essentially loses a crisis, well, very different implications, I think, for our defence budget from one in which they essentially win and pose a, an enhanced threat to, to NATO as a result. So I think it's,
0: it's rather too airy to say. And Ben, if, if we do end up increasing defence spending as a fraction of national income over the next several years, that will be a, a remarkable turnaround from what you were describing has happened over the last 60 or 70 years, and no doubt will have consequences for the rest of the Chancellor's budget.
2: Absolutely. But I think clearly there is something major has happened in the last few weeks, we are potentially at something resembling a turning point, one of those dates that when we look back in the history books might be one of the end of one year and the start of another. And I think it's not unreasonable to think that this couldn't mark a breaking point. Thinking about the comparison with Germany, and of course, it's a bit arbitrary if the UK is desperate to remain number two spender within NATO. But let's just say if, if it did, a reasonable rule of thumb is that the German economy is about 20 percent bigger than the UK economy. So if the Germans do succeed in reaching 2 percent of GDP, the UK would have to be hitting something like 2.4 percent as a minimum. So you're looking at something like an extra eight to 10 billion pounds every year on defence. And the MOD will not be the only department coming to the chancellor cap in hand asking for more money. The NHS is the obvious example, but given the you know, the rate of inflation and the pressures on the public sector, it will be Departments right across the piece asking for more cash. And if we do in the medium term decide as a nation we need to spend more on defence, that will ultimately mean less to spend on everything else or it will mean higher taxes in order to pay for that. You might be able to borrow in the medium term, especially for you know, an exceptional conflict and the associated costs. But eventually that will have to be treated like any other permanent item of spending. And that will potentially mean less to spend on other things that we value like healthcare like schools and other public services. So it is going to be a tricky decision. That might be something, one of the longer-term outcomes of this conflict that, of course, we're not focusing on right now. But for the Chancellor, at least, that could be something that he needs to consider, perhaps not this year, perhaps not next, but in some future big spending review and we revisit the size and the shape of the state, this will, of course, be something that enters that calculation.
0: Malcolm, I get the sense from what you're saying, but correct me if I'm wrong, that... If you were to spend additional money on our defence, that you might be looking at the operational budget increasing rather than another upward shift in the capital and equipment budget. Is that is that fair? And would that mean, for example, reversing cuts to the size of the army? Would that be where your expectation of priorities would be?
1: I think there'll be quite a lot of political pressure to increase the size of the number of people in the regular army. But there are good reasons why the Integrated Review decided to make cuts there, partly in order to be able to better equip the army. So numbers of personnel, as the Russians are finding to their costs, really don't necessarily translate into success if you don't have the logistics and all the less visible elements of defense capability, the, the ability to do electronic warfare and cyber warfare, the the ability to have effective coordination of all the different elements of your capability, air-ground coordination, and so on. And there are areas there where more investment is needed. And one of the things I think that the MD hasn't yet quite got right is there's quite a lot of investment in platforms and ships and aircraft and and tanks without necessarily the, the stocks of missiles and munitions that allow you to operate those capabilities for a longer period of time. And as we're seeing in the war in Ukraine right now, those stocks could be run down. It's one of the Russians' big weaknesses, actually. They don't have enough precision-guided munitions for their air force. So there may be a choice between reinstating some cuts in army numbers and uh, restocking the missile and armament capabilities we have across the services. In the short term, I think, making the force we have more effective I think it's going to be a a strong priority, making it more responsive, able to get places quickly if something happens. But I think as the dust clears, there may be pressure, if there's more money available, to increase the size of the armed forces as well, to have more aircraft in, in the RAF, for example, more frigates in the Navy. The numbers there have been coming down for some time, and maybe some more battalions in the Army although the army, I think, maybe it's a, a less strong case there. In my view, in the, the, the army, I think it's more about qualitative improvement. How long is a piece of string? The nature of a, of being part of an alliance is, I mean, unlike domestic public services where you, the need is domestic and the response is domestic and you get what you pay for, as it were, in terms of what you provide to the British public, here we're essentially providing a capability to an alliance, and the burden-sharing issue is absolutely central to determining the appropriate level of defence spending, which, of course, comes back to that question of the comparison with Germany. If our political leaders decided it's vital that if Germany tries to catch up with us, we try to stay ahead of them, then, as Ben suggests, that means we would have to increase our spending insofar as they do. But we could also argue that, well, the Germans are, at last, doing their bit for NATO. Yes. <laughs> and therefore, we will do just what we were planning to do. We won't cut. But it means we can relax a bit more because, at last, the three big European powers are playing their bit. And the American reaction might also be, thank goodness, the Europeans are, at last, pulling their weight a bit more. And this plays into this is a wider discussion because the Americans, of course, are the, by far the biggest military power in NATO. There's a European concern in the long term they're going to pivot into the Pacific to uh, to contain China, and the Europeans are going to be left more on their own. And that will be a big pressure. I mean, it's the, the debate about defence spending level for the UK, of course, right now, is being driven by what Russia does. But it's also driven by a concern about what the Americans will mm-hmm. do in the medium term. Once this immediate crisis is over, and the Americans are very engaged in this crisis, once this immediate crisis is over, Well, we Europeans have to do more for ourselves in defence terms, which I suspect we will, which is why what the Germans are doing is very welcome. But maybe the final point here is that it does tie in to the UK's relationship with the EU and with our Mm -hmm. European neighbours more generally. Defence is one of the stronger cards we can play because it's an area in which we've got a comparative advantage. So it's sometimes quite elusive, but I think there is a real sense in which the UK can strengthen its diplomatic and perhaps economic relationships with the European countries by being there, uh, being a key player in contributing to European security. And certainly the prime minister is one of the European leaders who is most welcome in conversations with Zelensky. The UK matters there. The UK is not isolated in this crisis of defence terms quite the contrary. And that may be a diplomatic card. It's one of the few areas in which the UK has a comparative advantage in terms of strengthening our wider relationships with European allies and friends.
0: And that advantage comes from the greater size of our spending and armed forces, presumably. I was actually going to ask you exactly that, because you've talked about Europe quite a lot. This is essentially all via NATO. So has leaving the European Union made a significant difference to our needs, or perhaps, as you were suggesting, it makes the additional diplomatic muscle that we might get through additional defence spending more important than it otherwise would have been?
1: I think in in strict military terms, it hasn't, because our main involvement in collective defence is through NATO, not the European Union, and that's true of European Union members as well. France and Germany look to NATO more than the European Union, even France does, in terms of organising a response to, to threats like that from Russia. But I think the EU plays an important role, is playing a a crucial role in this crisis in orchestrating the non-military aspects of the response to Russia, Uh, everything that comes under sanctions, which is a very wide uh, remit, uh, and all the things about securing supply chains uh, and so on and so forth. And there, I think... The UK has been, to some extent, marginalised in relation to sanctions, but also actually in relation to dealing with refugees from Ukraine. It feels like the UK is running to catch up agreements that have been made between the United States and the European Union. So there is a sense in which for defence specifically, it's not directly affected, but it's an area in which we are at the top table at NATO amongst the Europeans, in a way, when on economics, on sanctions, on migration, all the other things. We're not, we're, we're there, we're important, but we're, we're not that important. Financial aspects of sanctions, we should be at the top table, but we've been marginalised. that the, the government, I think, has, has felt uncomfortable about for the reasons which are part of a different conversation yes. <laughs> to, to be more central in that area. The whole post-war settlement, really from 1945, the formation of NATO 1949 onwards, has been predicated on a recessed German military role for very obvious reasons, it's self-imposed for most of the period. And if that is changing, then so much changes about European security. The NATO settlement was designed partly to contain Germany. <laughs> and now we're in a situation in which Germany could become the most powerful military power in Europe. But having the capability, having military capability, is not the same as being willing to use it. So the, the British and indeed French comparative advantage on the military front isn't only about spending. It's about our willingness to use those forces, sometimes in ways which we may in retrospect think are foolish, but nevertheless, the UK forces have been involved in conflicts one place or another almost every year since, since World War II. There's not been many years in which they've been not fighting somewhere. The Germans have almost never fought during that period anywhere, like the Italians or the Japanese. And if that's changing, that really is a big change in in geopolitics. And of course, once you start using your forces more, then that itself creates pressure to spend more.
0: We're running out of time, but I'm I'm desperate to ask you a, a final question, which is about the the value for money that we get in defence spending. And uh, I suppose there are two huge questions here. One is that the National Audit Office is continually complaining about the capacity of the Ministry of Defence to purchase and manage uh, big uh, equipment projects and indicating that they feel a lot of money is being wasted. And then the second big question is that um, there were certainly some questions about the efficacy of British troops in Iraq and Afghanistan and whether actually the quality of what we had was as good as we Thought it is. So, I mean, just just some final thoughts, really, on 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 your views on whether we're getting good value for money, which is still 50 billion a year that we're spending on 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 defence.
1: It's a chronic problem. People have been talking about this, you know, for the whole Cold War and the whole post-Cold War period. In partial mitigation, the biggest problems are in those areas in which uh, you're trying to put in place uh, unexplored technologies, and you're at the cutting edge and In in civilian area, that's also a problem. But I think it's also the way in which requirements are set. There are so many different actors. I think the military is not necessarily that well-placed in terms of managing very long-term projects for all sorts of reasons. And a way, everybody understands what the problems are, but there never seems to be a way through it, unfortunately. So yes, there does continue to be waste. Some of the waste is because... Because it's so hard to build and deploy new generations of equipment, old generations of equipment are stretched well beyond their natural lifetime. And that's inefficient in military terms and often uh, very costly. So I don't think that problem's going to get get much better. Sometimes it feels as if it gets better for a couple of years and then it goes back into old habits. So I'm I'm quite a pessimist on, on, on that, really. In relation to your question about Iraq and Afghanistan. Clearly, in both cases, they were, in the end, strategic failures. Uh, You can argue about how big the failures were. They were shared failures. We've shared them with the United States and other participating countries. So they weren't especially British failures. And I think in both cases, they illustrated how hard it is in the modern world, in the modern post-colonial world, to change the trajectory of foreign countries uh, through military occupation, which is essentially what we were trying in both cases. And I think Russia is going to learn that lesson the hard way in in the weeks to come in in Ukraine.
0: Any last word from you on the immediate pressures facing the, the, the Chancellor as a result of likely additional requests from the MOD? I think it's going to be very
1: hard for the Chancellor. And of course, the Ukraine crisis is creating a whole multitude of other spending pressures and revenue pressures because of the rise of energy prices and everything else. So it really is a perfect storm for for the Chancellor. And I I, I don't envy him at all. I suspect he'll try and give the MOD something but not make long-term commitments until it's clearer what the crisis really means. And if there's one glimmer of hope for the Chancellor in that discussion with the Ministry of Defence. It's a really pretty poor performance of Russian conventional forces in Ukraine. Sometimes we've been designing our equipment, especially for the and long term, around a, a picture of Russian capability, which I just don't recognise in the way they're behaving in Ukraine. So the worse uh, Russian forces perform in in Ukraine,
0: the the happier we will all be and the happier, I suspect, the Chancellor will be. Ben, any last words from you on that particular issue?
2: I think the big thing for the Chancellor really is this is another shock and another pressure that will just make it even harder for him to be the tax-cutting Chancellor that he perhaps wanted to be or certainly that lots of his backbenchers would like him to be. And this is just another spending pressure that will put more upwards pressure on the size of the state make it even harder for him to perhaps be in a position to to reverse any of these tax rises or enact tax cuts before the next election. And will mean that this is going to be a bigger state, even more interventionist government than we thought a few weeks ago, which was already a break with the past. And I think that on top of the, the COVID shock, this, this will have long lasting implications for, for the government and for fiscal policy that this Chancellor will have to grapple with.
0: On that note, I think it's time to end this. I mean, it really is the, the the case that we seem to be having these huge shocks one after another, all very different, whether it be um, the financial crisis and then Brexit and then COVID. And now, well, we'll wait and see how long lasting this shock is. But as we live through it, it feels like this is going to be another shock to the financial and economic system, as well as to the strategic and defence situation uh, for the UK. And the first time in a long while that the... Strategic and defence situation has taken such centre stage when thinking about the economics and finances. Obviously, Iraq and Afghanistan cost a lot, but in the sense of the economy, they were pretty much isolated from everything else, whereas this feels like it's having an impact across the peace. Mr. Sunak's only been in office now for two years. It feel, must feel like a lifetime to him as he's lived through more problems than many of his predecessors put together. But thank you ever so much to Malcolm Chalmers for that fantastic insight into the pressures on the Ministry of Defence and the issues that are arising from the current crisis in Ukraine and to Ben Zaranco for putting all of that into the context of the wider public finances. Thank you for listening to the IFS Zooms In. If you did enjoy this, please do rate it, recommend it and tune in next time in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much.